Hello and welcome to Inside Bristol Live, the podcast that takes you behind the headlines and inside your local newsroom. Uh, my name is Christian Davis. I am your host again this week, for the second time in a row. I mean, as much as I'm happy that I'm the host in the podcast, Alex Ballinger is, is finally gone. So bit of a sad day, the original host. And uh, so is producer Matt. So now it's me and Video Chris. Hello, Video Chris. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's, it's not just Video Chris anymore, is it? It's podcast it's, and it's, Video it's Chris. It's video and podcast, Chris. <laughs> okay. I'll try and remember that. It's a, it's a long one. Um, we have uh, a really interesting show this week on what has been uh, a, a busy week in Bristol. Um, and this is saying that we record on a, on a Wednesday and it's already been a hell of a busy week um, with some really interesting stories. Um going on uh, a lot of big news uh, so on this week's show we uh, are going to speak to Esme uh, Esme Ashcroft our political reporter she's going to be here for a chat about uh, the arena uh, there's been a, a, a big decision made this week and I guess finally a bit of progress made on that front um, we'll also be speaking to Michael Young um, he'll be here to chat about uh Chando's house and some really kind of devastating news about the the rehab facility in Bristol and uh, finally Alex Wood uh, who had an interesting experience in court this week that he'll be here to tell us about um, so yeah should be good. Before we start just a bit of admin to get out of the way uh, don't forget to subscribe uh, rate and review the podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at IBL Podcast. Okay, first up, we're going to be speaking with Esme Ashcroft, our political reporter. She's going to be in the studio discussing the long-awaited Bristol Arena. She's had a pretty busy week, and for good reason, there's finally been some progress on that front. So let's find out what's been going on. I've, like, nailed my cooking technique. Uh, Do you do the Gordon Ramsay? Oh, I don't know what that is. What's yours? Yeah, you go first. So I just, see like, two or three eggs, um, whisk them into the pan but like lowish heat mm. with butter and then like keep stirring them keep it nice and yeah. slow so they're quite like fluffy now i'm exactly the same as you but gordon says on the heat for 30 seconds off the heat for 10 give them a stir around so then because they keep cooking mm. once you take yeah, them yeah, off yeah. the heat yeah, yeah yeah so you never overcook if you do that Oh, it sounds I, like more effort. I, I like, <laughs> it is slightly more effort, yeah. I like the way you refer to Gordon as if as he's Gordon, a family yeah. friend. <laughs> Big G. <laughs> Eggs aside, um, we have Esme Ashcroft, our brilliant political reporter in the, the hot seat, uh, the literal hot seat in the, <laughs> the smouldering cupboard that we record the podcast in um and it's been a big week on uh bristol's political scene for one reason in particular that i think Ez is going to talk us through to start with i will be delighted to talk <laughs> you through it so monday we had the um extraordinary full council meeting to talk about bristol arena so this was called by a cross-party group of councillors and they essentially wanted to talk a little bit more in depth about the future of of Bristol's city centre arena. Now, that culminated in a vote and it was almost unanimous that councillors across the board voted to say that Temple Island would be the best location for the arena. There were eight abstentions and no votes against. Now, interestingly about that is that uh, Marvin Rees also voted to support the motion. 
However, in his speech, he said, you know, of course, all things being equal, we would love to have the arena in the city centre. However, all things are not equal at the moment. We've got kind of internal Bristol-based pressures and also, you know, external kind of national pressures with Brexit and there's lots of uncertainty and risk. So that was the reason why he kind of, the caveat he gave to his vote. And then on Tuesday, we moved to Cabinet and that is where we finally got the final decision after months and months of kind of, you know, toing and froing that we will not get a city centre arena. And instead, that land at Temple Island will be used to build a hotel, a housing, a conference centre, business um, kind of offices and a little bit of shops as well. Right. So big, big news is finally, finally confirmed that we're not going to have the city centre arena. No. Um, Some strong reactions from both sides. Strong reactions on both sides there. Yes. I mean, this project has been going back, you know, late 90s. 2003 is when we kind of get the official start date. And we've toed and froed previously about location. But from 2012, where, you know, previous Mayor George Ferguson and the Lib Dem administration before had bought that land in the city centre, that's really where it starts to kind of, things start to progress. And we have that that patch where we think, you know, the arena is going to be built, colloquially called Arena Island. Mm. And so for it now to be kind of taken back almost, it's um, it's prompted quite a lot of reaction interestingly a lot of the kind of the business community is in support of mama's decision and Mm. they're saying you know the jobs which will be provided and the return for bristol will be much higher and that's not just jobs as a result of the end product you know throughout construction with apprenticeships and things like that that's something marvin even mentioned himself Yeah, something marvin has mentioned and then um obviously on the other side we've got people who are quite upset because this promise of a city centre arena has now been taken away and all of the cultural benefits Mm. from having a concert venue in the middle of town have kind of um, gone. Okay Um, and so now at this stage um, there's been a lot of talk about the potential for it to be in Filton what happens now what is the likelihood of that happening and whose hands is that in? Well it's not in Marvin. It's not up to Marvin Reese because that land um, on Filton Airfield, which is technically within the Bristol boundary, the Brabston Hangar, is owned by a private firm called YTL. So it's up for them if they want to come forward and say, "Hey, look, you can have your arena here," which they have already said they would be willing to do. But now, what's most likely is we will enter into a six-month investigation period where both YTL and the council will kind of. Um, come together and there will be negotiations as to who gives what and you know what we might get at the end result so after that after that six months period we should have a little bit more of a clearer picture as to what an arena in Filson might look like cool okay and so obviously from your perspective it's been a very busy couple of days a lot it's of, been tiring uh, it's busy a lot <laughs> of the time for you but it feels like this last couple of days have yeah been, there's been lots of coffee yeah 14 cups i can't 14 cups yeah i saw your tweet hours. 14 <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of coffee um yeah I'm, I'm like one a day so that's two weeks of coffee for me yeah it's, but, it's not healthy yeah but i guess it's necessary so yeah just talk me through kind of the process for you and how you mentally prepare yourself for that kind of shift because you know you know that you're going to be putting in lengthy hours for that 
Yeah, I think that's that's quite a good point. Actually, mental preparation. You do just kind of you wake up and you're like, look, I know today is going to be pretty full on. So it is that kind of stealing yourself. But at the end of the day, it is really fun and exciting. Mm. And you do find yourself, you know, throughout these council meetings, like the um, the one on Monday that was about three hours and yesterday's. Goodness, I don't think I got out until half seven and it started at three. So we're talking like quite long periods. Mm. But you're throughout that always quite tense and you know you're just really listening out for the key bits yeah. of information and you know it's like a sense like your senses are all heightened so yeah. it is really fun but at the same time working on that kind of level is exhausting and mm. when it finishes you kind of have a little bit of a crash and you're like oh goodness <laughs> but then of course you have to because obviously we're like live blogging and live tweeting yeah, yeah. then is when after it finishes you have to go back and write the story yeah. which appears in the paper and online so you know it, it is a it is a marathon. Like if you're doing um, elections, you can be awake for like 24 hours at a time because, you know, these are long, drawn-out processes. So it, um, I think by the end of the week, I'll feel pretty shattered. Yeah. But um, ultimately, though, it is enjoyable. Yeah. Well, you deserve a rest. I think you're working with me this weekend. I am you? working with you this weekend. <laughs> how has that happened? That, uh, I'm not sure how that's happened. Yeah. But don't worry, next Wednesday... <laughs> I will have three days off Uh, (laughs) and I will be sleeping for most of them but obviously um, at the moment I think all of the office knows I don't have a kitchen sink so hopefully yeah I saw the tweet about the plates is that was that true or not (laughs) so for listeners I'm having some housework done at the moment and they're taking out our kitchen so we don't have a kitchen sink so all of our plates and dishes are being washed in the bath but my lovely partner doesn't always wash up as soon as um, you have eaten so we inevitably end up having to shower with plates wow <laughs> the glamour <laughs> brilliant um so <laughs> going back to the arena um what is the kind of the scope for the next six months as, as you said there's going to be something of a, a kind of pause yes before things become clearer regarding filton so, so i think for, from your outlook as as our political reporter what what is on the horizon so in terms of what we will be reporting that six month investigate investigative period between the council and ytl we're not going to get much out of that because all of that information will be you know commercially sensitive so i would be very surprised if there were any leaks or anything like that um coming from that but what we could see in that six month period and i think is probably highly likely is people coming forward with um, potential legal challenges regarding the Temple Island land. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you've got the Arena Island Limited, the operators who were going to be operating the city centre arena. Now, they can put forward legal challenges for loss of earnings, Mm. um, you know, kind of breach of contract, that type of thing. And then we might also see some judicial review um, bids being put forward, although that would be slightly harder because that's a um, a challenge to process uh, rather than outcome. So that might be a little bit harder to to prove. Okay, and what what do you reckon the likelihood is of that legal challenge from Arena Island Limited? Because I imagine they're not best pleased about this outcome. Yeah, I especially would... considering they've named themselves that. Which we yeah, yeah yeah well that, that's so arena island limited is is kind of a um i don't know if you'd necessarily call it a shell company but like a, a offshoot company of mm-hmm. smg and live nation so they've come uh, together okay. they're two very big yeah, yeah. obviously um music 
venue operators in the UK and and around the world. And they've come together to create this um, kind of, yes, yeah, spur uh, company to which was going to operate the city centre one. So they've obviously got some big kind of legal brains on their, on their um, books. Um, I think they are, there is definitely a potential for a legal challenge, but the companies themselves will be fairly wary of reputational damage for themselves as well because you know if they're say there's a council wants to build an arena in like Plymouth and they go down and they say oh well we'd like to be involved with this the council then might be a bit wary and say well if we get so far down the road and it turns out that we can't do it and we pull out are you going to sue us Mm. so they'll be thinking about their reputations as well so I guess it's just a balancing act really and it depends where they fall on it okay um, here's a question that I'm sure you probably won't be able to answer, but how long until we have an arena in oh, Bristol? <laughs> goodness me. How long is a piece of string? Yeah. So I grew up in just outside Bristol, so I'm from Thornbury. And ever since I was about seven, we've had the promise of an arena. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still waiting. You know, I'm 28 now. Things haven't progressed. Um, <laughs> hopefully before I'm 50. <laughs> I don't know. Um, With if we do go to Filton, then that uh, they say that YTL say they can build it within three years. However, there needs to be planning, which Mm. goes in before that, and the planning process is going to be key here because it's an out of town site. There is a national government um, planning guideline called the sequential planning test. Now that basically says that for any big project like an arena the preference is to have it in the city centre so you're not causing this drain and obviously the council had a piece of land in the city centre which was appropriate Mm. and they've now said actually no we're not going to be using it Mm. so it will be on the kind of onus of the council in YTL to say this is why this out of town site will be better but a lot of it's done on kind of balance of probability so whether it will be difficult for them to persuade, you know, planning inspectorates, we're not sure. But I do foresee issues with the planning process. Okay, so it could easily be another th- 15 years yeah. of reporting on Yeah, I think, you know, this isn't going to die okay. anytime soon. <laughs> well, at least next Wednesday we get a bit of a break. Yeah, um, good lion. And yeah, you deserve it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for that, Bye. <laughs> So there you have it. Some really interesting stuff there from Ez. Uh, she's had a busy week, but for good reason. Um, the decision has been made that, that there will not be an arena by Bristol Temple Meads. And well, who knows where it will be at this stage, but there's a lot more to come on that front. Hopefully she gets a bit of a break over the next few days. Next up, our education reporter Michael Young is going to be in the studio. He's going to be discussing the fate of Bristol's last residential rehab centre, Chandos House. He's not here to talk education today. Um, he is here to discuss some bad news, really, that we've discovered over the past 24 hours regarding um, a, an important facility in Bristol and for a lot of people in Bristol that is uh, going to be closing. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Mike's here to talk about that. Yep. So um, we, we've heard a very sad news at Chandos House, which is the last residential rehab centre in Bristol is set to close. Um, earlier this year, we ran a story um, and an appeal with 
the uh, they're a co-op um, with regards to trying to to raise enough money f- to keep them afloat for a while, and mm-hmm. that that they needed to get a hundred thousand pounds. Uh, Chamdas House, as a way of introduction, is um, a as mentioned a residential rehab centre for men, and it it has uh, a place to sleep. You can stay there for as long as you need. The men are referred there, although in recent years they have started taking people without referrals, and that is because when you come in on a referral, you get a grant. Chandos House gets a grant to take care of you, but if they take somebody off the street, they don't get a grant, and they do it out of the kindness of their hearts and whatever they have in reserves. Part of that is part of the reason why Chandos is facing this problem, um, this financial um, black hole. But part of it, that's just part of it. The other half of it is that obviously um, we're seeing less budget for people. Um, who need help um, because of austerity measures and so when a man is referred to Chandos House with their rising prices in you know counselling and rising prices when it comes to staff when it comes to buying food for the men bed sheets laundry equipment that sort of thing sending them to classes AA groups they no longer get the same amount of funding as before that funding's been halved and it's not just Bristol City Council, it is all the councils around the country. So men from all over the country come to Chandos House. Most of them then, once they recover, stay in Bristol. Obviously, this is very sad news for the city, but it was mm. not without trying, was it? There was there was support from some famous faces who have spent time then recovered there mm. and gone through rehab there. Um, yeah, we, we know uh, they won't explicitly say that they have gone to Chandos House, but mm-hmm. we know people like the journalist and writer Will Self. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know he spent a period of time in Bristol recovering. We know he spent a period of time in Western Supermare recovering. He's a big supporter of Chandos House and, you know, the reasons are his own, obviously, but he came down to Bristol. He's always raised money for Chandos House um, on several occasions when he came down to Bristol. And he's obviously based in London, which is quite nice. The word then got round because Will Self being, well, Will Self, he is... Um, a very well-known, um, rec- you know, he, he's very well-known. It's well-known that he's recovered from being a drug addict. So he talks about it quite openly and then talks about the Chandos House appeal. Um, Russell Bren picks it up over the weekend. He um, he decides to put it on Instagram and, it, it you know, he just did very well for them. But unfortunately, just not enough. Yeah. It was quite a short period of time that the appeal mm. was open, right? It's the start of August until this announcement uh, yesterday. Was yeah, it? Well, day that's before. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's just a bit too little, too late, I guess. That's right. So, so we're we're recording on a, on a Wednesday, and we heard, mm. we heard on a Tuesday, and uh, and sadly, it has only been a couple of weeks since I went to Chandos House and spent about two and a half hours with them. It was a fantastic experience to go down to Chandos House uh, to meet people like James Dickinson, who's the executive director. And, really the person running the show all the members of staff hugely commute uh you know committed to their course they all love at what they do and that really came across mm-hmm. but most importantly was meeting the men who have come and left chandos house in a better place it was just incredible to hear their stories one of them talked to me who's now aa coordinator himself he talked to me about his alcohol problem his drug problem um and you know 
it was essentially nearly a lifetime, 20 odd years of taking alcohol consistently. Uh, at his worst, he was drinking a bottle of vodka, a bottle of wine and several cans of cider a day. And just listen to, listening to him turn his life around, now being teetotal was uh, an incredible experience. Meeting another man who um, had his children taken away from him. He was very candid about it. Mm. And then ODing it at, at home to now being where he is a former soldier um, and so I was very 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 blown away by what they were doing there and I just think for the people who don't know Chandos House you don't know that the miracle um, of Chandos House and what happens there every day um, you know it is it is something you know maybe someone you can go and find out because it is it is a, a, such an essential resource to Bristol and mm. um, what are the potential repercussions because I think it's mm. uh, he's given like a 10-week time frame mm. between um, now and closure. Mm-hmm. Once it's closed, what what does this mean for for people who need help? This is really men bad. that need help. Yeah. This is really bad news for Bristol. Uh, that's the truth. Uh, and I've watched people recover from drug addiction. Uh, I have a member of my family who's recovered from drug addiction. And I'm always, you know, to watch that, and to know someone you love go through that is a terrifying experience. So something like Chandos House not being there, people having to go further afield just to go to a residential home. But if you think somebody is from Bristol, wants to stay in Bristol because he has his family support with him, this is an example of a young man actually who's currently at Chandos House who was put in Chandos House by his parents. Asking him to go somewhere like South Wales to mm. do his rehab. That means his family has to make a two-hour round journey to say Cardiff mm. just to see him, and that you know sort of plays on his thoughts about whether he wants to stay in rehab. And then the question is, if he doesn't stay in rehab, he reoffends and he just does drugs again and and it's just heartbreaking to hear that he would have nowhere to go fair play to the people at Chandler's house you know the people who run Chandler's house have pumped their own money into it to keep it going until they've completed the treatment Mm -hmm. but they just can't take anyone new now because and by not taking anyone new they can't get money and by, if you can't get money, then obviously you, you're close. And as it will be a very, very sad day. Chandler's has been going for 35 years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I know so many, especially homeless men who end up at their door. Yeah. Okay. And um, the reasons for the funding cuts, is, as you say, it was just austerity measures. And mm. well, you talk somewhere about- where the council was looking to... To make cuts or... That's right, yeah. He, he talks about austerity. That's that's the biggest reason. I mean, the truth is that them, their main source of income comes from grants from taking men who are in trauma so mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, who, who have some form of addiction. But without without that money, the funding cuts he meant, James mentioned to me was you know, half. He mentioned that it's been halved. You know, I'm going to take his word at that. He's a very clever man, obviously. Um, but... It sounds like, you know, when councils all across the country are facing the same issues, how can they, you know, the question is, is your priority a man who's got a drug addiction when you've got to think about housing, when you've got to think about education, when you've got to think about transport in your own city? Hmm. Where is the priority for a man with addiction and you funding his recovery? I can't imagine it's very high on the list. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's the sad thing. There's a potentially, yeah, that's a potentially sad truth. Um, as a reporter who in their own time works closely with homeless people and addicts mm. and considering it's a subject close to your heart and close to what you want to to bring people's attention to and write about mm-hmm. how and having followed Chando's the the news of Chando's all the way through from when there was like I think there was a kind of um, suggestion that it was under threat mm-hmm. a while ago mm-hmm. and then it came, it's come to this now I mean how how is that as a reporter for you oh, all it's, the way it's heartbreaking um I was uh I was setting a very difficult inquest on Tuesday, uh, on Monday anyway, when I, when I heard the news. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it absolutely did break my heart because I was thinking, well, what are the men going to do? You know, Chandos House is not just the men who are currently there. Isn't, with drug addiction, it's not like you recover and that's it. Your life is going to be mm-hmm. great. You know, that, sh- that definitely happens with some people. But with a lot of people, they it's the follow-up support that they need. And this is what they call the Chandos, the men who's gone through Chandos call the Chandos Brotherhood. And, you know, that day when I went to Chandos, it was an off chance. The number of men who were there, who were not living there, but had recovered and had decided to come back and give a helping hand, it was nearly the same number of people who were there. Mm. And it was just incredible to see how many men had come to support the place mm. because they've been through there. They now clean and they remember. I mean, one of them, and he was talking to me, we'll put the link up. And one of them, when he was talking to me, he told me how he relapsed. And then one night, you know, it sounds very dramatic, but one night he turned up at the Chandos house entrance and says, I don't know what to do in my life. I want to kill myself. And they thought he had been clean for about 12 weeks. And the house just went, look, why do you come sleep in a spare room? And then we'll sort out a bed for you tomorrow. And that's what they did. And then took him on for four weeks, got him mental health counselling out of their own pocket. And the question is, you know, there are very charities organizations that need to stay afloat anyway. Mm. I don't know many charities that would do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was incredible to hear. And then obviously knowing my own family members going through that process and sometimes still going through that process, it was an incredible sort of, you know, nearly, it was an incredible sort of experience to go through personally. So as a reporter, you had to be a little bit detached from it. But at the same time, mm. you know, there's no real way to be totally detached from a story. If you're totally detached from a story, you, you don't care about it. And if you don't care about it, then you shouldn't write about it because it comes across in your writing. Mm. And then nobody would put money into the appeal. So you would help nobody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's important to me mm-hmm. as a reporter. So yeah. Yeah. Well, um, do you know what is happening now at Chando's mm. in the next 10 weeks? What is, what is the, the plan? Yeah, so in the next sort of 10 weeks, three months, what they're going to have to do now is try and raise that money. They're still going to keep trying. They're going to try and get the 100,000. Okay. But now there's a closing date, essentially. Uh, before that, there was no closing date. We yeah. thought we could keep trying. But the 100,000 is only going to keep them afloat for another year, another financial year. Right. It's not a lot. So they need to find... Something sustainable. Something sustainable. So, yeah. And that's difficult because I know James has had to cut quite a lot of members of his staff mm-hmm. just to keep the place afloat. He doesn't want to cut them because he's he, he loves working with them and they're yeah. necessary. They're the key, the key part, right? They are yeah. a very key part of his staff. So he's had to make people redundant just to keep the place afloat. 
and it broke his heart. It really, really did. I mean, watching him do that and say that you, you know, you're hearing me say it, but if, if you were stood with me mm. or sat with me, talking to James, you could see why it affects him so much. It is his life's project. Thank you a lot, Mike. And That's right. let's hope they find the money from somewhere yeah. over the next month. Yeah, I'm we, sure you'll be across it. You know, please go and have a read. Find out more about Chandler's house. Find out why it's such a special place. And please just, you know, put some money into it. Um, because, you know, a fiver or a tenner doesn't sound like a lot to you. But all the tenors edit up could save the place. So, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks cool. a lot, Mike. Cheers. Some really uh, insightful and genuinely devastating stuff there from Michael. I know it's a subject that's really close to his heart, so it's, it's really bad news for the city. Um, let's hope that they can raise the money in the few months between now and the, the date they've set for closure. Fingers crossed. On a slightly more light-hearted note, our final guest today, Alex Wood, is going to be talking about his experiences at Youth Court and uh, bizarrely making the news this week, uh, something that he probably wasn't expecting to do as a, as a news journalist. Uh, let's see what he had to say. I'm with Alex Wood. He's back in the, the hot seat after um, his Bake Off escapades last week. Any update on Bake Off? Um, Disclaimer. We're still in it. We still have a Bristolian okay. in, in Bake Off. Yeah, so Bryony, she's, she's, she's still in there. She had a rough week-ish. Not 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 quite up where she was week one, but um, she's safe. Still there. And she's, okay. she's still smashing it. Good to know. Okay, that is not what we're talking about this week. As <laughs> no, much no. as Alex could easily talk about Bake Off every week. <laughs> um, this week, we are going to discuss something quite funny that's happened to Alex uh, in court and he's actually made the news as a result, the national news, the national very like, uh, what's the word? The kind of meta press news, press talking about press <laughs> Yes, news. when you say national news. News about yeah. news. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. But it's our own, wa- our own watchdog. Everyone knows what it is. Everyone looks at it if, if they work in news, but... <laughs> It's yeah, so, so what's gone down, Alex? So in, yeah, that was a very generous uh, opening, actually. I have to say, you <laughs> picked that one up. Um, <laughs> this week, um, I was tasked with covering a case at the youth court, which um, if anyone's listening and isn't necessarily really familiar with court system, uh, youth sister or youth courts deal with, as the name would suggest, cases involving children. Um, you know, anyone at the age of 18, essentially defendants um, who are charged with crimes. Um, and, and obviously, <coughs> youth court um, is held uh, within the magistrate's court in Bristol. Uh, that's certainly where they start, at least. And it's just an area of, within the court, essentially, um, which is slightly secluded from the main court. I mean, there's a cer- certain courtroom for it. Um, and sort of I suppose tailoring it for youths there are certain differences that you would notice between an adult courtroom and one for youths so yeah I was down there covering a case um, which can't talk too much about because there are obviously there are strict reporting restrictions in place Um, but essentially uh, I was there on Monday morning uh, attended and with any courtroom you'll have an usher who's sort of uh, in the black robes with a clipboard usually and they're toing and froing and, and they've got a tough job because they need to keep that court flowing with cases. Um, and there's a lot of delays. That's Always a lot of delays. A lot of waiting of, around the yeah. next. And <laughs> those ushers, they, you know, they do a lot of the, the legwork trying to make things move and find cases. So don't envy that. 
But um, but yeah, I presented myself to the court and explained who I was from Bristol Live and here to attend a particular case for the defendant. And um, it was no issue at that stage. I was let in. And I mean, the sort of the context for this is that youth court ushers and staff are very sensitive about press and members of the public. Um, I mean, the fact it's it's secluded in a part of the magistrate's court gives suggests you know all you really need to know about how sort of tightly regulated it can be. Um, so I mean, I went in, sat down, and um, a couple of cases were being heard. Ones that I wasn't there for. Uh, and the first sort of alarm bell was a solicitor who was representing uh, a youth in court asked, you know, well, as proceedings were underway, so why is there a journalist in, allowed in court? To which the magistrates themselves were a bit baffled and sort of looked over at me and asked, my, asked me to introduce who I was and say uh, for the benefit of the court. And um, in that very second, you did feel a bit like, oh, it's going to be one of those <laughs> one of those kind of days. And unfortunately, at that stage, the legal advisor who sits in front of the magistrates, because magistrates are volunteers, um, he stepped in kind of nipped it in the bud and was like no there's there's no real reason why the press aren't allowed to be here right now let's proceed and and that was it uh, and then there was there was kind of this sort of this list um, may have looked over in my direction with a bit of a in a bit of a head shake and a a tut but there's nothing he can there's no reason why a member of the press can't be there and that was that um uh proceedings were you know ongoing i was kind of just making a few notes here and there for other bits and bobs because the case i was actually there for wasn't heard um and about half hour after the issue with the, or the solicitor had flagged it up, the the same usher came back into the courtroom, uh, the one who'd let me in earlier. And um, she came up to me and she, you know, there's things going on in the court. And she sort of looked at me and she said, um, are you press? And I sort of looked up. I've already, in my head, thinking, I've already told you this. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, I am. And she was like, oh, well, you shouldn't be in here. You You can't be here. And I was like, um, sorry? Like, why? On what grounds? And she just looked at me for a second. I, was like, oh, I, 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 I don't know. Um, uh, bear, bear with me. And and then she sort of, she wandered back up over towards the magistrates. Um, and, and again, very quickly, because that legal advisor was there, he kind of said to him, no, we've already clarified, you know, he's a member of the press. Uh, he, he's obviously identified himself and he's, there's no reason why he can't be here. Um, and I tweeted about it shortly afterwards. Just it was one of those moments where you think it's one thing to ask me to leave, but to not be able to give me a reason to not to say I don't know. Say, yeah, exactly. It's a, like a default position of the usher that press shouldn't be here, and that's just not that's just not right. Mm. Um, and so yeah, I tweeted about it, and it, it kind of within a certain pocket of journalists and journalists who are now lecturers or. Um, you know, work in PR, even actually some solicitors and barristers uh, were in the replies and and sharing the tweet. I think it appealed to a certain bubble of people um, who are or have been frustrated by the court system and maybe it's distrust of journalists attending. So that in a nutshell was kind of the it, but it's kind of, it's attracted quite a lot of attention since. Yeah, so hold the front page have uh, picked up. Yes. <laughs> and you're currently top of their, their homepage. Yeah. At the time of recording. Quite flattering um, yeah. and worrying, but <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't expect that. Yeah. Uh, 
so they just got in touch with you yeah. had a chat about it and yeah they they emailed me um a couple hours afterwards after my uh after my tweet was sort of getting circulated around and they said look we saw what happened we saw your your tweet about it um can we just get a few words and just find out a bit about what happened and what happened afterwards basically and i was you know more than happy to to explain it as i'm as i'm doing here um but i mean what was what what came out of it i mean so my that one particular experience on monday isn't unique and i think that was the thing that came out from all the replies i was getting was it's frustrating for for you at that particular moment but this is actually there's a there's a wider issue here particularly with i think court staff in a youth court setting where they are aware that you know these are these are children essentially and very vulnerable children at that and so the ushers are just trying to do their job and you know they're trying to protect the interests of the defendant they're aware that this is an area of the court that is more sensitive and obviously they see you a member of the press who they may not have seen before so i suppose from their point of view they're just naturally trying to do what they think is right but it was quite alarming to see the amount of people who were tweeting me to say oh you know i've i've experienced this or i've been mm. told i can't take notes before and um, you, you've had a similar experience before as well right is that right i've had um not quite as bizarre in the sense that they couldn't justify right. why i should leave but i've been held up before um trying to go to youth courts um by by ushers um and usually it's a case of well you need to wait here and I need to I need to check this with the magistrate and before you can come in and you know that that, that can equally be quite frustrating if you're there for a case that's about to be heard mm. you know you're there to do a job at the end of the day and if you miss it because an usher is holding you up for literally no reason <laughs> um, your news desk probably my boss would probably wouldn't look look on that very favorably no one of our counterparts was this the same day that someone from a new service in yes. Bristol had. An even worse experience than you, is that yeah, right? Yeah, um, that's right. There was a reporter from an agency who was uh, who was there to cover the same case as me at Bristol on Monday. Um, and she she actually came in, she came in a bit late. Um, so things get underway every day in court about 10am. If you're lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky and you're not held <laughs> up. Yeah, exactly. And she came in about, I think it was around about 10 to 11, 11 o'clock, somewhere around there. And, um, you know, we sort of did the, the nod thing whilst uh, knowledge <laughs> there's another journalist there. Yeah, hello. <laughs> um, and, and you just sort of carry on. And uh, there, was a, there was a brief break uh, in proceedings and she sort of mentioned to me, you know, have you been here the whole time? And I said, well, yeah, but there's been a few moments where they, they maybe didn't want me to be here for the whole time. Um, and she mentioned that she had actually been in reception for the best part of the last hour trying to justify who she was and um, explain to the receptionist and the security that she was a reporter attending the youth court today for a particular case. And mm. I don't quite know the um, the full details of, of what happened, but I think she couldn't provide them with a name or the name of the defendant, which I was able to. I had that information. And so they let me in. But she couldn't. And although she could name the day this defendant allegedly committed his offence you could say what the charges were you know information that you wouldn't otherwise have right all bar the name they were having none of it as far as i'm aware and you know they said right you need to wait here you need to wait in reception we'll clarify this we'll ring the courtroom upstairs we'll speak to the usher and we'll see if we can let you up but it was very much a case of you are not allowed to leave this reception until we say so and again that's just not correct there's there's mm. no legal grounding for stopping a reporter 
uh, or a member of the press entering a courtroom. Yeah. Unless obviously it's there, there is an order made or you know, there has to be exceptional circumstances. Yeah. That's what was really odd about that because even if she didn't have the name, There's, she has presumably had her press badge yeah, and yeah. I, I just imagine so. wanted to enter the court yeah but while it's an open court and uh, you know that i mean i suppose it shows the difference between youth court and your normal court because absolutely yeah i mean that that just shows that they are on a really high alert and they are yeah and it, it, it comes back to um you know who is in the courtroom and it is like i say vulnerable very vulnerable young people and families who are probably in the court process for the first time for a lot of them they're it's quite intimidating it can be quite, a lot of pressure for them and I, you know, I, I do sympathise with that element of it, but um, but from my understanding, she, yeah, she was held up in the reception and thought, you know, I think she was there for a little while and thought, right, I'm just going to go up there myself and try and speak to the the usher because this is not this is not happening mm. and uh, I'm going to miss the case at this rate. And apparently, she, yeah, she did try. She went through the door and you have to go up two flights of stairs. And in the process of walking up, the receptionist had clocked it. <laughs> Hang on a second. <laughs> Who's that? Called the security, and she was brought back down by a security. Um, I mean, that probably sounds a lot more heavy-handed and, and, and dramatic, dramatic but, well, than it was. But you know, that is what she said, and um, that is a hundred percent worse than my brief, <laughs> uh, you know, incident with an usher who was just sort of trying it on. But yeah. it's again, it's it's this wider sense that. I think court staff, some court staff. What would help here? Yeah. What would help here is, I think, some training. Mm. And it wouldn't even need to be extensive, maybe even just guidance yeah. to, to ushers, um, you know, who are rushed off their feet and to security guards who, let's be honest, you know, the, the, their main role there is, is to ensure the court is a safe and secure premises. So from their yeah. point of view, they see an unknown member of the public wandering up there. You don't want to Fair be responsible play. for a, a exactly. safeguarding issue. So they're, you can understand why they're, yeah. On, yeah, why they're on high alert. But I mean, if, if your press is, I mean, I can't imagine anyone's ever kind of fakes being pressed to get no, into it. I mean, how I you wouldn't could either pass someone to be fair, but. Yeah, but I feel like you, you'd probably be able to tell, like knowing very quickly, you yeah. both, the reporter concerned and yeah. yourself, I don't know, you have to use a bit of common sense, I yeah, guess. Yeah. But, but yeah, training. I think training would go a long way or just, mm. just generally, I mean, it, it, looking at it very simple, you know, very simplistic sort of view of it. Um, it's, it seemed to me very much like certain members of staff on that day were of the view, a default position that no one comes into this courtroom unless you are family. Mm. Uh, and by family, you have to be like the mum or the dad. It can't be even like a distant, it was very much a case of lockdown courtroom. Mm-hmm. And unless you're a relative, you don't go in and in reality that is the case members of the public are not allowed in youth court but members of the press are different they are not members of the public in this sense yeah. so it should be a default position where you have relatives going in and if a member of the press is there and you know wishes to enter that courtroom and there's no there's no order otherwise mm. then that is where that's that is that should be the default default position but you know, it's not the case at present. <laughs> so there's a lot, I think, a lot to be done. Um, and if, if one thing can come out of the hold the front page piece, <laughs> um, I would, I and mean, that's one of the points I was keen to try and make is, um, you know, if, if, if we can learn from this mm. and just have a bit, a bit of uh, better understanding between our profession and, and the court system and vice versa, mm-hmm. I think it helps us. It's mutually beneficial. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Alex. Um, If you want to 
read about Alex's experience, <laughs> um, visit Hold the Front Page. I think it's .co.uk. Um, and it's, it's at the top of the page with a nice big picture of Alex. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't tell me they were going to take that picture. Oh, no permission. Yeah, it's copyright well, infringement. Maybe. Um, I'll let them off. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is an interesting read. That's definitely worth um, having a read. So, yeah, thanks Thank a lot, Alex. Thank you very much. Alex Wood there discussing a really bizarre incident that he was involved in this week. Uh, got him on the front page of a, a newspaper website for other journalists. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point that there's a lot of um, educating that needs to be done regarding where reporters are actually allowed to be, um, especially in court and youth court. Right, that is it for this week's show. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Um Thank you, video podcast, Chris. No problem. It's been video good. Video and podcast. Podcast video, and video. video. Which do you prefer? Video and podcast. Video first. In, in that order. No worries. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, video and podcast, Chris. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at IBL Podcast. Once again, thanks very much for listening and I hope to see you again next week.